All it takes is a click to listen to RTI online. Get exercise for your finger and exercise for your mind at english.rti.org.tw. You're listening to Radio Taiwan International. Up ahead this hour, we take you over to Lights, Camera, Asia, and In the Spotlight. But we start off today's program with a new edition of Here in Taiwan. Hello and welcome to Here in Taiwan. Today is Thursday, January 16th. I'm John Van Trieste and joining me here in the studio today, we've got Leslie Liao. Hello, everybody. And Shirley Lin. Hello. Up next, what's with politicians' hair? We'll be hearing why it never seems to change in just a moment. After that, some rather depressing news about Taiwan's birth rate. And also, anyone for some Tai Ing Wan-themed beer? We'll be hearing about a new effort to commemorate Taiwan's upcoming inauguration. All that coming up next. Please stick around. Before we get into any of that, though, I'd first like to start off with a very uh, relevant topic for this time of year. We're about to head into a long Lunar New Year holiday. I believe it starts later next week. Mm -hmm. And uh, everyone is feeling pretty good about it. You know, a lot of people get days off. There's some travel involved for a lot of people. Get to see old friends and family and all that good stuff. Um, For the police, though, it is also, unfortunately, rather a busy time. And uh, they are... You know, putting together some preparations to make sure that we all stay safe during this period of heightened robberies. That is right. Yep. Um, so, in the police uh, departments uh, around Taiwan, they are holding these drills in case of uh, robberies. And uh, like for one in uh, Tainan, they really gone all out here. They got some women police um, dressed up really looking pretty hot in like, you know, fishnet stockings and mini skirts and boots, long boots like and a leather jackets. Budget. I'm sorry, what is this supposed to deter? <laughs> hair hair and, and wardrobe and then, budget. Yeah, okay. And then they're like holding, gosh, you know where they get these rifles, these machine guns. I mean, oh, oh I wow. should show, okay. They're like, the police. Leslie's they have getting really interested here. No. Look at this one um, up up close. See that? What kind of gun is that? Is that a real machine gun? Is no, like, I don't, that real, can't be real. real that doesn't real, look like it. That's, so they have real? hair and makeup, and they should have gone to drama okay. school. They really should have. <laughs> no, plus they borrowed a couple of Harley Davidson motorcycles. Heavy oh, this motorcycles. was just someone's like midlife crisis in, <laughs> yeah, did, that's <laughs> enacted for her, or they reenacted some kind of movie. I don't know. I mean, was this all necessary? I mean, did they have to really go all out like this? You know, your taxpayer <laughs> dollars at work. Well, do you know and, there was a story back in the day about um, a criminal or a suspect who had evaded arrest for a number of years and the only thing that brought him in he was he turned himself in because they heard that they had a really pretty police officer down in Taichung and he was just like you guys can have me I just want to get a look at her this was wow. this happened a number of years ago <laughs> okay. but I definitely I remember, remember that, story. that yes well I mean in this case it looks like there were four uh, you know women police here dressed up you know really looking hot and everything but I think they're meant to be robbers okay oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> All right. And so they're like trying to, um, you know, rob a bank or something like that. And, and they do it in heels. <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. They're all in heels and boots and everything, everything. Fishnet, stockings, mini skirts, um, leather jackets, you name it. Uh, with Harley Davidson, yes, um, there's one right there. Okay, so anyway, so um, yeah, uh, that's, that's in Tainan City. Okay, so they did that. Uh, robbing a bank, assuming to rob a bank and all that kind of stuff. I don't, I don't know. I mean, what's the point? Like, you want the police to learn how to, what? Um, I don't know how this a, is supposed to deter a, anybody. I don't know. It's I, kind of like a glorification. It's like, it's ooh. Kind of, oh, they want to get on the news. That's I why. I think maybe they want, somebody had some dreams of, of, of uh, acting and, you know, they just, maybe, did they have like speakers playing the theme music as I it was going on? I wouldn't be surprised. I really yeah. wouldn't be surprised. I wish that there was a video showing exactly how the drill went and everything, but, so, um, so that's well, that. So I've heard, this is not the only drill I've heard of happening before. There was one, was it last year or two years ago in uh, Jinmen? Uh, where the police officers, they had people playing the role of uh, lion dancers who sometimes come around, you know, uh, on the high street, on the, you know, you know busy shopping districts. and Yeah, during Charles New Year, But they yeah, had, yes. like, their, their scenario was that these were actually just dressed, robbers. these robbers dressed as lion dancers. And <laughs> so this is, this is not the only creative scenario that they come up with. I don't know how realistic any of this is. Sounds like such I a heist just having movie. Fun. I think, I think like, that they're just bored. But yeah. We're too law-abiding. Hey, but seriously, when it comes to real thing, they wouldn't be laughing. Uh, I mean, serious. I I think they need to take take it serious. I think they are, but just having fun while doing it. So did they succeed in their drill? Was it a success or was it a failure? Well, um, it doesn't say. But the thing is that in Tainan, they had another drill. Oh, there was another one. Yeah. And uh, this time, they used a thin policeman and a fat policeman. Body shaming? Anyone? Um, No. Pretending to be robbers, yes. Okay. And um, uh, wait a second. I'm sensing a theme here. So Isn't there a movie the... coming out about an overweight police officer? Oh, is that the one with Donnie Yen? It's called, yeah, yeah. What's yeah, that yeah. called? Uh, oh, something some... oh, dragon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, no wonder. So that I, I think that that this added. is, I don't think that this is something they dreamt up themselves. I think they, they, they once, <laughs> okay. they saw movie trailers, was like, that's a good idea. Yeah, they're living stardom in their own way. But, but they certainly have to learn how to handle, like, Big size robbers, right? I mean, I guess it's a good practice. I mean, how do you handle big size robbers? So, what was the moral of the fat and thin police officers? I don't know. You you tell me. (laughs) Anyway, I don't know. Like, are they trying to stress the importance of cardiovascular capability in? Either Actually, stopping well, or getting away with crime. You would think that robbers would not use someone I'm surprised that who's not quite mobile. I don't know. I'm surprised that, that they like do these drills, especially around Chinese New Year, though, because like, don't, shouldn't they be always drilling? Why do we only ever hear about them this time of year? Like, well, more serious is, about I've, that. I've yeah. heard is it because people aren't may not be home? They may have gone yes to visit relatives or out of town. Yes, and, so and shops a, are closed. So there's a greater. But then shops wouldn't close and leave the money in there, would they? No, I mean, no. they need to save. Well, I don't know. Because, okay, let's get serious here. I mean, basically, um, what are the, some of the institutes, um, institutions that need to be aware during Chinese New Year are like uh, those uh, jewelry shops, uh, pawn shops. Oh, yes. Um, department stores and supermarkets. Uh, lottery, you know, those uh, shops that sell lottery the tickets. scratch-off shops. Yes, yeah. and, um, and gas stations. Okay, that's listed here. And so um, another thing is that the police department are warning um, the public that if they ever were to find themselves in the midst of a robbery, what's the, what are the four things that you should do? Get down. Don't panic. Don't panic. Yes, good, good. But I mean, yeah, don't panic. Yes, that is the number one. Um, secondly, I don't know. Call the police. 
Well, if possible. N- well, if possible. Hide, if get possible. out of sight. Okay, well, actually, it's to wash any spe- special features of the robbers and That's stuff. That's true. If you could. In the moment, it's often easy to just sort of everything become a blur. Yeah. And mm, when asked right. later, you may yeah. not be able to recall, which right. can be difficult. And, right. And the third thing is... Call the no police. sudden moves. <laughs> well, don't be a hero. Uh, well, yeah. Don't become a victim. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, okay. I mean, they obviously they they have to get away in a car or some sort or some vehicle. Mm. So, look for the license plate if you could. Right. And lastly, is to find to 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 um to remember in which direction they went. <laughs> the robbers escaped, oh. so they can tell the police later on. Right. That's a bit much. They went That's that away. That's a bit much. Well. <laughs> Uh, well, anyway, if we can, we can all stay alert in the midst of a robbery and not panic, maybe you would be able to give these features to the policemen. Mm. Now, I always, I always thought that uh, politicians kept their haircuts the same because, well, first of all, it makes caricaturists' jobs easier and political yes. questions, but also because it, it sort, of, sort of becomes their brand almost in a way, doesn't it? Mm. Everyone can picture the hair of, you know, name me a politician, and the hair is probably one of the first things that so comes to mind. That's very true, actually. <laughs> Tying one, too. She has a very distinctive yes, hair cross. Yes, she does. You know, President Trump has a very of course. distinct yes. hairstyle. I think you could... Maybe if you think of Richard Nixon or something like that, you it could think of... It becomes sort yeah. of like their trademark, you it know? Really you don't, so they don't mess with it. Yeah. Well, there was a discussion online because someone posed a question on an internet forum. They're saying, is there some unspoken rule between politicians that they can't really change their hairstyles? Like, what's going on? Because you have to realize... Every contender, almost every major uh, presidential candidate we had, they pretty much have the same hair. And the funny thing is, this person did a bit of research. They went back to some old pictures of like Tsai Ing-wen and uh, James Song, Ma Ying-jeou, and they put them next to each other, 30 years apart. And they have pretty much the exact same hair. Wow. Um, 30 years apart. And Tsai Ing-wen's hair is a bit longer than any of theirs ever got, I must say. Yeah, it's a little bit, but she's always still had that like short bob rounded yeah, down bob to the neck cut. cut. Okay. Yeah. So the angles and the geometry of it are similar. It's all way. similar. And then there's supposedly uh, rumors online that, you know... Um, the, our newly elected vice president, Lai Qingde, he has had the same hair for a number of years, and he's gone to the same person to style his hair for a long, 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 long time. I never really noticed Lai Qingde's hair. Yeah, never. I know he has more than most. If he were to start wearing a mullet, I would notice. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, yeah, I think that his hair is pretty standard. There's nothing... <laughs> He maybe he's the exception to the rule. Yeah, someone's saying like if you are a great leader and one day you get minted on some currency, you know, you're gonna want a trademark to definitely help you pose oh, with a, yeah. definitely get a mohawk for that day, <laughs> yeah. the engraving day. Um, and they say they point out that not even it's not just something exclusive to Taiwanese politicians. They say uh, you know the founder of the CCP Mao Zedong. Mm-hmm. Or uh, the leader, he had pretty much the same hair for decades upon decades. They put Kim Jong-un in there and they put side by side. They're just like, yeah, very high forehead, very mm-hmm. middle, down the middle. So is this a general politician look or is it? Um, does it vary from place to place, it, do you it, think? It varies from place to place. But I think like when you decide like if you're going to be a politician and then you turn 18, it's just like this is going to be my hair forever. For the Forever. <laughs> 
when this you is... turn 18 okay yeah and then if, if you decide to be a politician and then people say like they're afraid people won't be able to recognize them if on oh. an important thing like maybe on a ballot if mm. you change your hair too too drastically that is true and then uh, the discussion just took a right turn. And then <laughs> it's funny because they had big old pictures of like our old president, Mind Joe. And they're just like, wow, Mind Joe was really handsome when he was young. Yeah. And then they're just like, forget about Mind Joe. Look at James Song. And then they just like devolved into this thing. Anyway, that's basically pretty much what it was. I think the coin minting is the most uh, compelling argument here. You. They'll be but, waiting for decades before they get their face <laughs> minted on coins. Well, they're not. I don't think that every. I think you have to be a very exceptional person, like or a queen. Yeah, to have too. your. I don't feel like <laughs> not just any politician. You can just expect to have. Her. Yeah, but so. that is that. Like I go through hairstyles pretty frequently. I sometimes I can't make up my mind if I want to, you know, grow it out. If I want to cut it short, do the bowl cut. Do so, the bowl cut. Leslie, <laughs> you've been with us since what May last year. Yep. And you've kept the same hair, hairstyle? No. You've changed? Yeah, I've changed it. Ooh, I haven't been noticing. Uh-oh, sure. Yeah. It's just Uh-oh. minor changes, yeah, right? I grew, no, I grow it out. What? Like I've gone through more iterations of long and short in oh, my time gee. here. Really? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Where I, have I been? Remember in right. my first two months, I, buzzed it, I pretty much buzzed it off. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I guess that just gonna that just goes to show I'm probably not gonna be a politician anytime soon. Yeah, you have to be a pol- pol- have that political clout to even be noticeable. I That's guess. true. All right. Well, we talk a lot about our very, 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 very low birth rate here in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, it is pretty remarkable. Like, I saw someone with two kids on the subway the other day, and I was like, wow. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> that's, but that just goes to show, like, people don't often do that. So. Go, wow. You see, you see, John, just from your reaction. No, it's just like... You are the future. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, the Ministry of the Interior, they released a report uh, earlier this week that said childbirths fell again in 2019. And how much further can they fall until we just hit Well, you got to realize this isn't like a record low. This is actually just a trend over the past maybe seven years since 2013. Because we hit a really low low in 2010. So in 2019, there were 177,767 children born. Now, the lowest that's ever been was in 2010. And that number was 166,886. Now, some experts say, you know, in Taiwan, we abide by the Zodiac, right? So people are kind of mindful of that when they decide to have children. So that year when we hit a low, it was the year of the tiger. Oh, tiger women especially are seem to like, they, do they bring bad luck or do I'm they a tiger. have bad luck? Are you a tiger? I'm a tiger. They have a saying, right? It's um, the eye of it? the tiger. The, it's the, the thrill of the fight. Yeah. <laughs> the thrill of the fight. Um, yeah. That is fierce. Are, do you are think you, I look fierce? No. My husband's a tiger, too. Mm. Oh, Double wow. whammer. And Double whammy. Yes. Um, anyway, so when we hit that low in 2010, it actually spiked up. We broke uh, 200,000 in 2012 because that was the year of the dragon. The dragon. That's the big year. And that's the mm. big year, right? And then, uh, and ever since then, we kind of slumped down. In 2013, we hit another peak in 2015, and ever since 2015, it's just been down, 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 down. Uh, and however, the MOI says, don't worry, because there's more... Uh, the, the, the rate at which we are going down is slowing down. 
Does that make sense? It does. It's not very encouraging, yeah. but yeah, still. Yeah, Because we have... We're doomed, but just not quite as quickly. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're pumping the brakes here on our, on our highway to hell here. Uh, it says um, we have childcare subsidies and, you know, children... There's also, like, they also say that children who are born in the year of the pig would be best with better luck, awakening foundation, uh, you know, like awakening, what's that called, wisdom, like kind of enlightened. Uh-huh. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Another, is, that, is that true? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I was born in the year of the horse. <laughs> Me too. So <laughs> Fellow horses. Fellow horses. <laughs> let's nay for great, great justice. Mm. So it's interesting to see that um, it's being tied to Zodiac years, and we're going to hit another dragon year this decade in 2024. So people That's are, soon. That's scary. Isn't that, isn't that terrifying? Mm. The last one was in 2012. Oh, my goodness. And uh, they're saying the government should adopt preventative measures such as, watch this, having celebrities who were born in a year of the tiger share their experiences as a way of helping eradicate stereotypes. Surely, yeah. would you like to make a case for... Children uh, born in the year of the tiger? tiger. If you're born in the year of the tiger, your you're, admi- admissions to schools are much less competitive because <laughs> your classes are smaller. That's yeah, very true. There you go. That that's one. Yeah. I mean, I, this is these are all initiatives that they're that they're mm. doing, and then they're also saying people are waiting for their financial situation to be better. That's a big one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So the, the and then one. you know family friendly workplaces, environments, providing childcare services for parents who need to work because it's. Double income these days, right? You have to be. Yeah. So anyway, hopefully we can see an uptick. Like we said, they're slowing down, but we're not on the uptick just Mm. yet. Four years ago, when Taiwan was elected the first time, the Taiwan Tobacco and Liquor Corporation put out Taiwan-themed Taiwan beer. Uh, they put like her picture, but like an acute. What are those called? Like pixelated. Eight bit. Yes. I have a bottle of that actually. Oh, probably expired it's, by now. It's, but... It is four years old. Uh, oh, okay. okay. Well, I would not experiment <laughs> with that. But anyway, um, they're coming out with it again. Another commemorative series of beer bottles uh, labels to because she's getting elected. She's getting inaugurated a second time yes uh, re-inaugurated you might say in may and uh but what i i knew that that this beer had been popular and uh that it had sold let's see like more than two million bottles but um what i did not know is that they do this for every president that gets elected do they i did not know that i thought that was a first Oh, I didn't realize uh, Mind Joe had one. I, th- yeah, I, thought- I know. I was just thinking about Mind Joe. This may have been just the first one that we that we noticed. It was, yeah. like I said, very strikingly designed with sort of video game graphic yeah, yeah. tying one, mm-hmm. looking like Mario there. I uh, I had, I have, I still have that bottle. Yeah, I see yeah, it. Um, maybe, maybe empty its contents. I'm and, not going to drink it, but yeah. you know, there's a crazy collector's market out yeah, there for things yeah, like this. Just and keep it. You know, well, the other thing I learned is that they also make commemorative liquor products for the commemoration. Uh, let's see. Some of them are going to... Uh, the, the company wants to supply the alcoholic beverages at her inauguration banquet. So, sucking up there. No, <laughs> but, that's um, how you do it. But no, they, they also sold, sell Gaoliang, I think. Sorghum liquor? Gaoliang yeah, yeah, yeah. deal, which is a very... Very strong. Hard liquor. I remember back in 2016 when she first got elected, I was looking for a bottle of that for my dad and I could not find it. Well, there's they uh, sold 100,000 of those and more than 100,000 whiskey commemorative bottles as well. So didn't know they did that. They're, they're pulling out the stops. All right, well, that does it for today's edition of Here in Taiwan. I'm John Van Trieste. I'm Leslie Liao. And I'm Shirley Lin. Don't go anywhere just yet. Coming up next, it is Lights, Camera, Asia, and In the Spotlight.
Lights, Camera, Asia. A look at Asian culture and history through the lens of cinema. Hello and welcome to Lights Camera Asia. I'm Jake Chen. Last week, we began to look at Outrage, a film released in 2010. It is an unflinching portrayal of the violent and gruesome acts that take place in and around Yakuza, the most influential, the most enigmatic, and the most powerful crime organization in Japan by far. There are a lot of mysteries in culture and history that revolves around yakuza and how they behave and the code that they believe in, which we introduce in the first episode of this mini series. In the last episode, which is part two in this mini series, we went through the plot of the first half of the movie. And for those of you who haven't listened, here is a quick recap. The film starts with a meeting organized by Sekuichi, the grand leader of the yakuza, for the one who oversees all the branches and all the subgangs in Japan. The film starts with him having a dinner with all the underbosses, who in turn oversee their own turfs and districts. At the end of the dinner, the grand leader talks to one of the subbosses, and his name is Ikimoto. And tells him that he needs to distance himself from a guy that he's been dealing with. The other guy's name is Murase, and the reason why Ikimoto is dealing with Murase is that the two were in jail at one point in their life, and they made what is called later on as a brotherly pact, a deal that both of them are expected to follow through once they are released from jail. And at this point in the film, both do. But Ikimoto is ordered by his boss to distance himself from Murase, who is not part of the Grand Yakuza gang. Although Ikimoto certainly does not feel like betraying his sworn brother, he has no choice because Yakuza, like many Japanese companies, which we explained in the last episode, the members follow a very strict code of conduct in which it is simply impossible. Uh, to disobey orders from your elderly or people who are more higher up in ranks. So, being given this order, Ikimoto moves forward and orders Otomo, a, another gang and family that is associated with his gang, to start a little gang war with Murase. The film then progresses into a series of very violent and bloody setup and confrontations, where members of the Otomo gang gets into it with members of the Murase gang. While all this is ongoing, Murase, the leader of the gang, holds several meetings with Ikimoto in hopes to smooth things over and to call it a truce. Because Murase himself is this very honorable, straightforward, and open、uh, leader of the gang, he believes in the older traditions and code of honor in the yakuza, which has this history that dates back all the way to the samurais and shogun days. In those days, the samurais, which are the warriors and basically bodyguards, their entire mission is to protect the warlords. So. Well, for Murase, following orders and following a certain hierarchy is something that he never doubts. He doesn't seem to realize that everyone has been trying to setting him up, 
and no one follows that code of honor anymore. He constantly tried to convince Ikimoto that he has no intention of starting a gang war, that he doesn't want to start a conflict. But while Ikimoto plays this dumb, nice guy on the surface of it, behind the scenes, he's been doing two things. He's been ordering his muscle, the Ultimo gang, to start one round of gang war after another, to rough up and to even kill some of the members of Murase, and to even mess with his business on his turf. On the other side, Ikimoto is also playing dumb and badmouths Murase in front of the Grand Yakuza leader, constantly telling the leader that he's not willing to cough up his part of the cash and that he's not willing to play ball or to fall in line. So intentionally, he has created this rift between Murase, a gang outside the Yakuza who's desperately trying to get in and fit in, and the Grand Leader, who is having a worse and worse impression of Murase. So eventually, while Murase is constantly trying to step back, several of his gang members are killed in a very, very brutal manner. As the violence keep on escalating, Murase eventually is not in a position to save himself. In what I consider one of the most gruesome scenes that I've ever witnessed on a big screen, or in this case, on a television screen, Murase was roughed up in a really bad way. He was having a teeth operation of some sort, while the members of the Otomo budged in the door and let's just say Ultimo messed up the operation and, and I'm going to leave out all the details because I could barely think straight when I think about it. That's how gruesome that is. So after the incident, Murase could no longer speak and it is at this moment that Ikimoto finally brings him in to meet the grand Yakuza leader. This is a rather scammy move on Ikimoto's part because he knows that Murase just can't speak at this point and that he pretends to be Murase's good friend and tells the Grand Yakuza leader that at this point Murase is willing to give up his turf and the benefit of all the drug dealing on, that's been going on on his turf. So Murase, a 70-something-year-old, old-fashioned Yakuza gang boss, has been pushed to the corner and marginalized, and he's been forced into retirement. Now, he has been severely injured, and he has no say in the matter anymore, and he knows that. But as the film progresses, we see that several of Murase's younger underbosses and gang members do not accept his fate, because they understand that their boss and themselves have been roughed up, and their turf have essentially been taken for nothing. So they try to retaliate, and what awaits them are really gruesome fates as well. Uh, Murase's remaining gang members are either shot dead, stabbed, or killed in other fashions. However, the killing doesn't really stop here. I don't think the movie would be called Outrage if it is simply a bunch of gangsters plotting against one another. I mean, it is, but the killing continues. Otomo, who has been doing all the dirty work for Ikimoto, just can't stand his gang members risking their lives and getting all the blame and a bad reputation anymore. And in one incident, one of Otomo's gang members ends Ikimoto's life. Kato, the man whose position is second only to the Grand Yakuza leader, has been witnessing all this, and he knows that this all happened for a reason, because there is a power shift that's ongoing between the underbosses, and he's done nothing but to throw even more fuel to the fire. 
So after Otomo kills his associate Ikimoto, he orders one of Otomo's good friends to end all the lives of the Otomo gang. And what ensues is a series of brutal killings. I know this almost sounds like a broken record at this point, but you got to understand just the severity of the whole thing. Because, because on the surface, every underboss is super respectful of one another when they meet or when they meet with the Grand Yakuza boss. They seem to uphold and respect this ongoing hierarchy that has been the underpinning of the Yakuza gang for years, decades, and even centuries. However, behind the back, the only thing they seek to chase after and to achieve is to have more power in their control. And that means killing other gang members, that means robbing and stealing and even taking over their turfs. So, while honest people like Murase is maimed and forced into retirement, the ending for Otomo, the muscle of the former Ikimoto gang, really wasn't better neither. After he has done all the dirty work, Kato, the one under the Grand Yakuza boss, has ordered other Yakuza members to massacre the entire Otomo gang because he knows that Otomo, who has done so much of the work behind the scene, also knows a lot about the inner working at a very, very high level, and he simply can't have or trust someone like that. So after risking their lives for their bosses, members of the Otomo gang is finished off one after another. And by finish off, I mean killed in very, very gruesome manner. One is shot, another one is stabbed, another one is strapped to his car while somebody leaves the car running all the way to the coast. And the result is... Again, I'm not going to get into details. The head of the gang, Otomo himself, is eventually spared and thrown into prison. But towards the end of the movie, somebody uses a shiv or a makeshift knife to stab him repeatedly in the back, and Otomo gets into a bloody fight to ensure his own survival. The film ends right here at this moment abruptly, and we don't know whether Otomo survives. What we do know is that Kato has assassinated the Grand Yakuza boss and has taken over his position as the new leader of the entire gang. So, in a way, the story of this film is a very delicate piece of contradiction. On the surface of it, everyone is dressed in a very fashionable and presentable way, and everyone follows a certain sense of order and respect towards others. In the first 10 minutes, it seems like the entire Yakuza gang functions really well like this well-oiled, well-organized machine. But the director soon pushes us to behind the curtain and let us see the real working behind the gang. And the truth is rather ugly and shocking, which is every gang member in every moment they have is trying to undermine and even kill others to gain more power. And the results can often be very, very bloody and unsightly. So outrage is a direct challenge to the many traditions and cultures that we've come to believe that is associated with the Yakuza. Well, on the surface of it, members of the Yakuza gang who make appearances in this film do still follow that culture. We can see that down to their core, they are all tainted and attracted by greed and power much more than anything else. I hope the bloody and gory details haven't put you off of this movie because 
besides all the stories, it is certainly a very beautifully shot and well-crafted piece of cinema, with no doubt. In the following episode, we'll conclude this miniseries and we'll get into the reasons why this film is culturally significant on many levels. Thank you very, very much for listening to this episode of Lights Camera Asia. I'm Jake Chen, and I'll talk to you next week. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In the Spotlight. Welcome to In the Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin. And with me today in the studio is Jun Wakabayashi, who is an analyst at AppWorks. Um, he said his dad is Japanese and his mom is Taiwanese, and that's why that last name. <laughs> anyway, hi, Jun. Hi, Shirley. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Very, yes. uh, very much a pleasure to be here today. Right, right. So, um, but you were born in the states. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. I'm although I'm half Japanese and half Taiwanese by blood. I was born and raised in the U.S. Yeah. All right. And uh, what did you study? So uh, in college, I majored in finance, um, and then after at NYU, and then after graduating, I worked for a company called PwC for a few years. Uh, but after that, Price Waterhouse, Price Waterhouse Coopers, correct? One of the <laughs> right, big Coopers, four accounting right. firms. So, what is AppWorks? AppWorks is uh, both a VC and startup accelerator. Uh, we're based and founded in Taiwan, and so essentially that means we both invest in startups and also help uh, incubate them. Uh, okay, and I thought it had to do with apps. Uh, originally, it was focused on developing the mobile ecosystem here in Taiwan back in 2010, and when, when our founder uh, started the company. Uh, but since then, we've grown to encompass uh, a lot more than just app companies, but actually specifically uh, those startups focusing on internet, AI, as well as blockchain. Oh wow! This I've heard of those terms. But they're still very foreign to me. <laughs> yeah, blockchains and um, okay, why not? But all right, and you're an analyst, correct? Yeah, at uh, AppWorks. That's so, right. what's your job? What do you do? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's well, analyst is just a title, right? So everyone sort of charts their own path at AppWorks. For me, I joined the company about two and a half years ago, and my mission at, at AppWorks, especially being one of the very first foreign hires at the company, is essentially to make AppWorks a household name in a region we like to call Greater Southeast Asia, which essentially is Taiwan plus Southeast Asia. So essentially, we're trying to. Uh, position Taiwan as this hub within this greater region, this very fast-growing, dynamic region called Southeast Asia, where we have been a little bit less known since we only started expanding there about two to three years ago. Mm-hmm. Okay, and yeah, you do travel around, um, and so you travel to those countries you just mentioned. I mean, mostly Southeast Asia. Yeah, I'm correct. So wh- probably about twenty percent of my time. Right. Oh, okay. So why do you travel to those places, and what do you do there? 
Yeah, I mean, if you look at Southeast Asia, it's home to about 650 million people, right? So if you were to consider it just one country, it would probably be the third largest in the world. Uh, it's growing incredibly fast with countries like Vietnam and Indonesia really contributing the bulk of that growth, anywhere between 6% and 7% uh, GDP per annum. And uh, in terms of internet penetration, although only half of the total citizens in this region have access to internet, it's growing very, very quickly. Every single day, uh, so that in and of itself is incredibly attractive to early stage investors. Right, it means that a lot of the consumers in this region are just now coming to terms with consumer affluence, uh, digital penetration, and transformation. So it creates a lot of opportunities. So it's my job here in Apex to really help. Position AppWorks as a go-to VC fund if you're looking for funding, or a go-to startup accelerator if you're looking for resources to help develop your business. As an analyst, when you go there, what do you analyze? <laughs> yeah, so when I go to these countries on the ground, um, I'm doing. A variety of different things. Uh, number one is essentially uh, just networking, um, getting your name out there. This includes going to different conferences and events, having one-on-one -on -one meetings with investors and founders and other community partners. That sounds more like a marketing manager. <laughs> It's effectively a, a BD role. You, you could think about it, uh, but honestly, this term BD can apply to any part of Wait, uh, your job. Wait, BD. What are you doing? Business development. Oh, okay. Yeah, correct. I'm sure you have your lingos here. Yeah, yeah gotta that's right. Go slow with me. <laughs> sure, no problem. <laughs> okay. Apparently, you've been to Vietnam like 10 times. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess it's really developed there, right? Right. No, now. actually, it's huh? it's not actually that developed. Oh, maybe it's more developed it's, touristy wise. Tur tourism wise, wise is quite yeah. developed for sure, but it's still very much uh, an emerging economy, right? Okay. Um, in the last 15 years, that's when the country has really experienced a lot of its economic. Economic growth, um, so it's it's the country has experienced a level of economic prosperity that has never seen before. Uh, on top of that, it is the third uh, largest population in Southeast Asia, growing very very quickly, yes. and half of the population is under 35. So it's creating a lot of opportunities in the startup space right now. That's why really? it's very very exciting. Correct. Wow, and I thought that you know Taiwan be a, a country with you know high aging population, and I thought that's sort of like a trend in the world, but you just said that. Yeah, most what? What was the percentage again? Yeah. Are less than thirty-five years old in yeah. Vietnam. Essentially, half of the population is under thirty-five. Yeah. Oh correct. gosh. Okay. Now, why is that? Because the rest of the world is aging, whereas they're. What does that mean? Well, it's actually. Did you it's, ever get to analyze that? It's, it's very uh, consistent with a lot of the emerging countries. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Really. Yeah. So if you huh. look at countries like South Korea, Japan. And Taiwan, uh, the, fertil the fertility rates are very, very low. Oh. There's just not as many new children being born. Uh, in emerging countries, uh, where there's just a lot of uh, economic growth, you're going to probably see a higher amount of children being born every single year. Oh, I get it. Mm -hmm. Uh huh. Very interesting. Yep. You know, when I first look at you, and then you said that you studied finance, I was going like. You don't look at it. Yeah, was uh, it really in your interest? I mean, seriously, or was it not pressure from your parents? <laughs> Tell the truth. It's, it's a it's a very good observation because honestly, I think that I'm the most uh, non-sterny. So Stern is the uh, business school that I went to at NYU. Non-sterny that you'll ever meet. So finance, honestly, was just like this default path that I chose. My brother chose it. I figured it'd be a good foundation to have. I didn't really know what else to do, so I figured it was a good, uh, safe choice to study in school. And and I'm actually. 
actually quite grateful I did choose that path because uh, allowed me it equipped me with a level of business acumen and understanding of companies and corporations that allowed me to do what I do now very effectively. True. True. Well. Well, thanks to that. So, thank your brother, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess in a sense, sure. <laughs> well, then it sounds like you're. I'm very much like you, because I think I grew up not really knowing what's best for myself, and and actually, I'm the kind of person who doesn't really know how to make decisions for myself because my dad is a, a strict dad, you know, and he was the one kind of like. Um, I don't know, drawing the blueprint of my life in the beginning, in the beginning. Okay. Like, you know, um, we started when I went to the international school in Tokyo, they st- the last two years of my um, high school years there, they started the IB's um, program, the International Baccalaureate. And so there was economics class. And my dad said, take economics, it's good for your future. I said, okay, sure. Then when I went to college, naturally, I, st- I majored in economics. Um, well, I added math later, but, you know, and now I have, not, have nothing to do with those, right? <laughs> nothing to do with economics. But anyway, I think you're better off than I am. <laughs> I, you know, I think you touched upon a, a, a very interesting uh, cultural issue that is rampant in not only in Taiwan, but a lot of Asian, Asian countries. countries. And that's... Uh, having success already predefined for you from a very, very young age. And it it usually entails getting uh, top scores, good grades, going to Taida or an Ivy League equivalent, becoming a doctor, lawyer, or engineer, getting married, having kids, buying a house, and done. You're set for life. (laughs) You know, but gosh, like after traveling for so much, you you start to understand that success should be defined by what makes you happy and what makes you fulfilled, what you derive meaning from. And there's many, many different forms of success, not just the blueprint that I laid out for you. Mm. And so honestly, it's an initiative that I'm quite passionate about, especially here in Taiwan, just trying to empower the younger generation here to mm. challenge that mold and really find out what makes them, like what makes you, you. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, it's a journey that I've certainly been going, it's a constant journey, it's a work in progress, but I think uh, I've definitely broken out of that mold. I mean, look at where I am today, I'm in Taiwan working <laughs> here. Most of my colleagues in uh, NYU are probably still working in corporate jobs, working finance or banking or consulting in New York or San Francisco. For me, I've completely gone off the rails and here I am yeah. now. You're listening to In the Spotlight with Shirley Lin. Very interesting that you touched on that. And I'm really glad that I've, you know, interviewed quite a lot of young people nowadays doing what they like most. And not just only one thing, but maybe two or three at a time, you know. And and they're good at it and, mm-hmm. and enjoying it and exploring the world while they're doing that. So I admire that. Yeah, I mm-hmm. really do. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, are you good at math then? You know why I ask that? Because you're in finance. Yeah. And that just makes me think, think you have to be good with numbers. Yeah, I mean, I guess I do fit the typical Asian mold of being good at math. I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm, I'm extremely good at it, but it is a foundational skill set that I've needed to develop for sure. Yeah. So you just have one sibling? Yeah, just one older brother, correct. And your parents are very happy what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thankful to have had very supportive parents from the very beginning. Oh, that's good. Um, I mean, I've, I think they did try to uh, 
put that mold on me growing up. But I think they long realized that we're, my brother and I are just going to do what we want. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but I think I'm very fortunate to have them trust us enough to want us to have a good life. And eventually, we'll be able to support them and be financially stable. And, and then they, that's what you want for your children, right? For them to be happy and financially stable, be able to you know, raise a family successfully. Right. You feel obligated to support your parents? Um, I do. Uh, I think yeah. that's just an inherent part of uh, the cultural values that yes. uh, I grew up with. Um, mm-hmm. It's something that uh, my parents have done to their parents, and I think they passed on that values to my generation. Uh, I mean, I think in Taiwanese culture, there is this um, concept of xiao sun, which is essentially yes. you have to take loyalty, loyalty, filial piety. Yeah, filial piety. So. Uh, Despite growing up in the U.S., I think that was still very much a big part of my upbringing. Hmm. Okay. Whereas on the other hand, I think it's because your parents had, you know, the the Western, the American uh, culture influence, that they're very open to accepting what you're pursuing. Whereas, you know, Asian parents are not so. They say, no, 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 you've got to study law or you've got to study, you know, medicine, you know, that kind of thing. Although I think things are changing in Taiwan, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and I think that parents are more open to supporting um, what the kids, you know, want to pursue, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Slowly but surely, yeah. Yeah, so. I, I think in, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate to have been born and raised in uh, a Western culture, but especially still with an Eastern influence, uh, especially when it comes to work ethic, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think in Western cultures and education systems, they place more of an emphasis on individualism and creativity and self-empowerment and understanding. And, um, I think these are phenomenal um, and have a huge impact in helping you understand who you are and what makes you tick uh, growing up and really helps you develop and understand what your true interests and passions may lie. Mm. So is your brother, your older brother, still in finance? Yep, he is. Oh, okay. But so he's he going is down a more doing, traditional path, yeah. Uh, okay, but he is doing what he loves, though. Yeah, he loves it. So <laughs> more power to him. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, what kind of uh, things do you do on the side besides app works? I mean, interests, hobbies, things yeah. you are thinking about pursuing, maybe someday in the near future. Sure. Sure. Yeah. There's uh, definitely a whole variety of different side projects that uh, I do on the side, and I think that's also one of the biggest advantages of living in Taiwan and also with my current job is you, you do get afforded that luxury here in Taiwan. It's just such a comfortable place. It's kind of like a playground almost where you can pursue these uh, side hobbies. So for me, uh, whether it's uh, doing some personal writing on the side. Or, writing? Yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, a big part of my job right now and also my previous job was uh, interviewing and writing people, putting out thought leadership uh, and putting out content, English content especially, uh, to help educate the public about what we do. So writing is something that while I'm not super great at it, I do it pretty decently. Oh, you mean like letting the public know what app works do? Yeah, yeah. So when I told you that one of my job, my primary job right now is to make uh, AppWorks a household name in greater Southeast Asia, of course, a lot of that is through networking and meetings. But the other side of that is also through uh, writing, publishing thought leadership and content on a website or a blog or on international uh, media channels as well. Well, it sounds like June Wakabayashi is doing more than what his title entails, analyst. So we're going to find out more next week on In the Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin.
Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.